We are looking to build our volunteer program. And one thing we've heard is that some nonprofits charge companies to come and volunteer with their organization. Have you heard of this? And do you think this is a good source of revenue? So I have heard of this. I think, though, I I think it's important to make a distinction. So, right, there's normal volunteer experiences and programs and where you have a need and you need volunteers and people come and you've got your program, right? And those kinds of programs, I have not heard those as organizations sort of figuring out a way to monetize those experiences. It's it's been more from a culture of like, we need to engagement and engagement oftentimes leads to contributions, right? Any fundraising study tells you, right, like that volunteers are usually a primary source of being some kind of a donor, even if it's a small level donor, because they know your work, they care enough that they're giving their time. So I think it's important to kind of separate that from this truly like almost more of a social enterprise model or more of a model that you are truly looking at building this as an offering or a service of like an experience for volunteers. And so that's where I've seen it monetized as an example, right? You get the trade show that's in town and, or that's coming to town and says, we're going to have hundred you know, employees, we want this team building experience for them. We want something sort of customized and special for them. And can you help us? Like I have seen it more in that kind of approached that way where organizations create almost packages if they've got, again, like there's all the questions, right? Do they have the capacity? Do they, you know, are they prepared to deliver something like this? Do they, do they have the resource to kind of invest in getting this up on the ground, uh, you know, build building this and so all of that stuff but more of those kind of custom tailored uh almost more like team building packages is the way i've seen a lot of organizations who have strong volunteer programs moving toward i think one of the things that and and you know when they budget when they put together like how they're going to come up with a package right there's usually of course the cost of you know, uh, the, the the resource, the indirect costs, right? All indirect costs, the supplies, the staff to develop it, um, you, you know, their expertise, their time away from doing other things and sort of packaging that into, into something. What I think is difficult, so this sounds great, right? And I'm not saying that there's companies that won't do this. I'm not saying that there's people, I, I mean, I don't generally see it from an individual volunteer standpoint. I haven't, haven't seen uh, this kind of program, but from like a company standpoint or like someone who's coming to town, a convention or trying to do something special to bring their employees together. I have seen it. And I think you just really have to make sure this is something that isn't just a bright, shiny object, like, oh, goody, extra money for this, because creating a program like this to do it well and and create this kind of service offering of truly creating like a team building experience that's beyond just normal volunteering, just getting a mass of volunteers to help your organization, but creating something where it's facilitated by one of your staff. Uh, perhaps there's kind of some special, uh, I don't know, like little gimmicks or supplies you use, like whatever that is takes a lot more time than anyone realizes. So the organizations I know who've gone this direction thought it would be a great revenue source and have have been disappointed. And, and uh, 
partly disappointed because they don't even have the bandwidth on staff to go and market this, right? It's kind of this passive thing that if someone happens to call out, you know, call them and ask them for this, great. But unless they're out there and truly have someone that's part of kind of their strategic plan that's out there trying to get this kind of business, um, it, it tends to fall flat. It might happen a few times, but it tends to fall flat. So that's at least just, I don't know, what I've seen. Uh, I think there's exceptions to it as well with um, the kind of nonprofit. So one of the things I would mention is that like animal nonprofits, oftentimes people are like, oh yeah, will you bring 10 puppies, right? To that, that our employees can pet. And like, it's not even a volunteer thing. It's like, oh, bring the puppies to us. And yes, and, and, and we'll pay you to do that. I, there's some of that, which is still, again, different than kind of what I think this question's asking. But so, so again, it, it lends itself to all the questions of like, how strong is your volunteer program? How much resource and time do you want to put into building something special? And is this really going to be, it's, a, there, there's no, unfortunately, silver bullet with revenue. So uh, I would just say, be cautious, ask yourself the right questions and put a plan in place if this is a direction you want to head because you have such a rock solid volunteer program that is known so well um, for kind of being, being above and beyond any other experience. Andy. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with everything you just said. I, the, one of the things I saw in the question, it, there's a little dissonance in the question because it starts with, we're looking to build our volunteer program. That's the first phrase. Okay, yeah. And then it starts talking about monetizing your volunteer program. I don't know that those two things are compatible necessarily. Mm. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. But but as, in terms of like creating something that generates revenue. I I'm all for that idea, but I think like to your point, Stacy, you got to be really systematic. You're basically saying, I want to create a brand new business, creating a business, which is going to have a revenue component and it's going to have a whole bunch of expenses connected to that revenue component. And this is not something that as nonprofits, we do all the time. This is not this is not part of our normal routine. So it's kind of out, outside of our wheelhouse. And, and which means we need to be really systematic about deciding whether or not that's a good idea. And there are some really great tools that you can use. So the one that's I think I think the one that makes the most sense and is kind of the easiest to to figure out is to look at what the and we do this for d donors, too. So it's not totally foreign to us, but it's to look at the lifetime value of of someone like if, if we're going to do this program, what's the lifetime value of that acquisition, that customer acquisition? How much did it cost for us to acquire that customer? What's the lifetime value of that customer? And is it worth it? Are we going to spend more money acquiring the customer than we are going to be able to extract from this customer over that customer's lifetime? And when you're talking about something like conventions coming into town and doing a team building exercise, the lifetime value of that customer is almost nothing because they're going to come and they're going to do exactly one thing for you yep. and then go back to Cleveland or wherever they came from and never think about you again. So, so you're not creating a long-term relationship. It's seriously, it's very transactional. You've, you know, did you get them interested in your mission? Maybe. Were they just thinking about like how many free drink tickets they were going to be able to scam off everybody else? for later, maybe. <laughs> so, so you have to think about like from a, a like a really complicated, holistic, look at the whole big picture. Like is, if we're going to spend $10,000 to, 
to get this, the marketing materials and everything we need to do this? Like, are we going to be able to extract more than $10,000 out of these people that we're, we're bringing into this social enterprise? Um, once you've done that, I mean, and this is why, you know, at my previous job, this is why everybody called me Dr. No, because the answer is going to be no, 100% of the time, <laughs> like or maybe yeah. 95% of the time, right? Um, so it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It doesn't mean that there's there's not social enterprises that are really smart for nonprofits to do, but you got to go do the work. You have to like do all the math first and then come up with a plan and say, okay, if we're going to do this, these are the resources we're going to have to expend to get this thing up and running. And this is what this is the return we expect at the end of X number of years. And look at it from a really sort of cold, sober light of day. Is this a smart thing for us to be spending our time on? Um, and if the answer is yes, awesome. That's great. That's more money for your mission. If the answer is no, at least you have like some an Excel spreadsheet that proves this is why the answer is no. And then that way, the people that were really excited about this idea will get off your back. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome, everybody. That's right. It's us again. Another episode of Nonprofit Everything, which just shows up randomly on your phone every two weeks, whether you like it or not. So Stacy and I have a bunch of questions for you this week, and we're going to try our ans- to answer them. Um, if you've got questions for us, if the questions that we've got this week are not exactly what you want to know about, you should send those to us so we can answer exactly what you want to know about. Um, we like answering questions about HR topics. We like answering questions about boards. We like answering questions about weird technical financial things. Um, Let's clarify that. Not we. We do not like that. You like that. (laughs) We do not. I think you like it. (laughs) You like it because you don't have to like you don't have to think about it because you know that I will just talk for 15 minutes and, and you can relax and drink some tea. That's true. I get like a little mental, mental break. Thank you for that. Listening to me drone on and on. Exactly. Um, I haven't had a question about unrelated business income tax in a while. So if you want to send one about that, we'll, we'll answer that one. (laughs) Let's see. We haven't had any gala event questions lately. We haven't any questions about silent auctions lately, like all our favorite topics. So, so go ahead and send us those so that we can hit those. We are on episode like 150 something. No, 120 something. I just lied. We're on episode of 120 something. So we've been doing this a long time, like three or four questions per episode. That's like, I don't know, quick math in my head, like infinity questions we've already answered. So, so just keep sending them and we will eventually populate um, all of the AI tools in the world with things that Stacy and I have said, because there's just so much content out there. So we will eventually dominate the entire sector. So <laughs> that's, that's our goal. And you can help us by sending us questions checking out the Nonprofit Everything webpage for show notes. You can submit a question there. You can also hit us any of the social media. Well, not any of them. Um, Some of the social media channels that have Nonprofit Everything available on them, and we check those as well. So um, send us some more questions. And with that, we'll jump right in. Okay, Stacy, this one's for you. I am a new executive director, and I sense a serious distrust between our staff and board. 
I'm concerned about this as I see this as a critically important relationship in any nonprofit. How do I develop a culture of trust between our staff and board where there may be things from the past that led to mistrust? Yeah, that is spot on with an important part of any relationship. And I think an organization that runs well. And there's so many reasons that things like that can happen, that mistrust can build. So I would recommend starting with trying to understand where that mistrust you're sensing, where did it come from? Having maybe some open conversations because sometimes people just need to share or vent and share their side of the story to kind of get that out. And if you're sensing it, there's probably a story there and it could be something that's easily fixed or clarified, or it could be something that that is deeper than that. I think a lot of times in my experience, executive directors have a tendency to use their board as a skate, you know, a scapegoat. And they'll be the first to say, well, the board said no to that, or the board, you know, denied that. And so board becomes the bad, you know, sort of the bad naysayer that everyone can't stand when in reality, it was the executive director's decision and always should have been. And so that also can sometimes lead to lack of clarity about roles. So, and that's where mistrust just starts to build, confusion starts to build, not understanding why the board who none of the staff probably have ever met or really had any kind of real exchange with, understanding why these people, these outsiders who don't know the organization are making these big decisions. So there's a lot of situations and scenarios this could mean. So I think First, getting to the bottom from and and talking to the board about it and the staff, trying to understand that because you're new, um, you know, you're in a discovery listening phase of of being new. So so use it to your advantage. Ask and say, you know, I'm sensing this. Is there something that went on that caused it? And then I think after figuring after doing that, I think it's a great opportunity to bring the two together and do it in a thoughtful way to figure out if there is sort of some trust or mistrust. Are there opportunities for the board to get to meet the staff, the staff to get to meet the board, just to kind of know, hey, we're all part of the same team. Here's our shared vision. I've seen organizations actually bring a board chair in to say some welcoming or opening remarks at something, um, you know, to, to potentially say to the staff, we couldn't do this without you. I think those kinds of actions go a long way. And I think the idea of that proverbial breaking bread together or having some sort of social time where it's not just, I mean, it's important to center around the vision and direction of the agency, but I think it's also important to just have downtime to get to know each other. Like, Hey, why are you on the board? Hey, why, why are you on the staff? Like, what do you do here? And and sort of, and, and what do you do outside of this? That is invaluable to building trust. I mean, the same thing goes within the boardroom itself, but but outside of the boardroom, board members interacting with staff, I think there's there's some cool opportunities to think about. And one one final idea that you might consider that I've seen work really well is nonprofits where the board has actually served the staff breakfast or something like cooked for the staff a breakfast or done something where it's sort of this reversal and sort of this servant leadership of 
we want to thank you staff. We know you work tirelessly and hard and we want to do this. And I know a couple of organizations who've done things like that and both parties have gotten a ton out of it. Like the board has been like, it felt so good to do this and it felt so good to support the staff. And again, though, it's got to, you've got to be really clear on here's the board's role. Here's our role as a staff and together we make the magic happen. That makes sense to me. I think for this particular question, I, I want to know what it was, what was the precipitating event that makes the board and staff not trust each other? Because I think that makes a big difference in how you address it. Like, and I, and, and I, I think it's fun that the way you answered the question was something that would work great in a small nonprofit, but in a big nonprofit would be very hard to pull off. Because the the boards, a lot of times in big nonprofits, are not. I mean, they they don't they're not they don't have time to interact with the staff. They're not going to serve anybody breakfast. That's not something that's ever going to happen. The the power differential between the board members on a very large organization's board and staff members is, I think that's unbridgeable. I don't know that there's any way you're ever going to get them to be friends or don't think of them as think of each other as as fellow human beings. It's really it's a really a very different relationship. So from a big nonprofit perspective, I'd be looking at what was the precipitating event? Why don't we trust each other? Because we all have very, very defined roles. I think it's important. I agree. It's totally important for a board to recognize that the staff has tons of expertise that the board doesn't have. The board is there for a very specific purpose, and it is not to run the organization day to day. That's the staff's job. And the staff needs to recognize that the board's overarching goal is to make sure that the organization is meeting the mission appropriately. And if, and those seem like, you know, it's really easy for us to just say that from, you know, out in podcast land, Stacy and I can say this all day, like, well, and you just stay in your lane. Right. But the reality is, is the, probably what's getting this into trouble is that people aren't staying in their lanes, that the staff thinks they know more than the board. So just do what I say. And the board thinks, why is the staff getting all acting up <laughs> and trying to do things that they're not supposed to do? I mean, you're right. Maybe the e previous ED used the board as a cudgel to say like, to, to use them as a scapegoat to shoot down ideas that the ED didn't like. I don't know what it is, but I think you need to address the actual underlying issue, which is like, what's the what's the event that, that created this? Is this just a sort of a longstanding us against them, or why is it like this? And then see if you can address that directly, um, and not in a you know. Stacy and I are always going to differ on these kinds of things. Like Stacy's going to go full touchy feely, and I'm going to go like, well, what's the technical reason for? <laughs> why is this different? What what can we do to change the change everyone's behavior by doing things differently? Right. Um, so I don't know. After saying all of that, I don't know how to answer this question without knowing exactly what the what the actual event was. I think it's too hard to say. I think that's fair. And I'm going to share another example from a larger organization that may also be applicable for those that are listening that are from larger organizations. And just to put into context, the idea about, you know, the board making breakfast or whatever for the staff, I have seen that done in an organization and, you know, about a million and a half dollar budget, as well as one that was probably closer to 3 million. So they are in general smaller. I mean, not, not these huge behemoths. 
The one example I'm going to share now is from an organization with an annual budget of 10 million. So it's significantly larger. And this was not actually intentionally designed to build this trust. It just naturally happened because the CEO of this nonprofit had her senior team come and share their own little, empowered them to come up with their own little um, kind of, hey, here's what we're doing, what we've set forth for our team for the next two years for the strategic plan. Here's what we're doing. Here's the top of mind issues we're addressing as our department of this organization. And so you'd have someone from fundraising and someone from volunteers and someone from programs and someone from finance and ops. And I'll tell you what, it was the board lit up like they were so excited to hear from different voices other than the CEO. And this C-suite team said, wow, like we really appreciated getting to know board members, seeing them, you know, seeing what types of things they deliberate, being there for the day. Uh, being able to share our own expertise and answer questions. They, you know, they they were the experts and it was probably the highlight of, a, of this retreat. And so I think that wasn't intentionally designed to build trust, but it did inherently build trust because it was about connection and sharing and respect for each other. So I think that's that's something that I would put in the toolbox too, not knowing Back to your point, Andy, we don't know what precipitated the mistrust. I think that absolutely is the first step in, in kind of discovering, learning, and uncovering some of this. And the one final thing I want to mention, and I don't know if you would think differently about this, Andy, for larger organizations. So I'm going to pose this idea, and I want to know what you think from a, a larger organization lens. I think that oftentimes staff work in nonprofits and have never been told, like never been trained on what the board's role is and how board and staff interact at different stages of organizational life cycle, right? So a large organization is going to look different than a small organization. So you get people, you get staff that have this preconceived notion about what a board member does based on either, you know, past experience or things they've heard or horror stories. So. I think it is beneficial for staff to understand here's this thing we call the board and here's what the board does for the organization and here's why that matters and why it's important and here's you know how that connects to what you're doing. And I think that that is missing because we hear about board training and oh board members get trained on their roles but does the staff really understand the board member role and you know I would hope board members would basically understand the staff's role. I mean, that they're making the the move forward. But what do you think? Do you think something like that would be important to a larger organization as well? Yeah, I love that idea. And and I think I've told the story a bunch of times, like really early on in my nonprofit career, I was an intern. And one of the things the ED did was bring the interns in to sit in the board meeting. We sat around this giant table and this big corporate office. It was super intimidating, but that was my first experience of what that was like. I knew nothing about how the board operated or what they did or what they talked about before that day. And, and that I think really for me formed, I mean, that was, I remember everything about that meeting. And because for me, it was just sort of a formative memory of like, oh, this is what they're doing. So I would totally agree that the staff need to know what the board's role is and why they're there and why they're working on what they're working on. And I think 
you know, what you're saying about, you know, getting them to know each other and getting the board to like sort of recognize that the staff has expertise in certain areas. I love that. I think that should be done as part of the context of your board meeting too, that it shouldn't be something that's extra or optional. And when we talk about siloing off sort of the responsibilities of staff and board because they're supposed to be doing different things. That doesn't mean you need to like keep them in separate rooms at all times. Like they can interact with each other. That's okay. I just, I've never been, I've never been a big fan of like mandatory fun either. Like, oh, we're going to do this thing and it's going to force this activity. I'd much rather have a conversation among humans and like sort of get there on my own without somebody telling me how to do it. But yeah, totally. I think interaction between board and staff is super important, whatever way you can figure out to do it. All right, Andy, here's a technical one that I know you're going to be great at answering. What are the common indicators a nonprofit should attempt to negotiate an improved indirect cost rate? Is there any scenario in which an organization might attempt to negotiate an indirect cost rate with a federal agency and wind up with a rate lower than an unnegotiated de minimis rate? How often do nonprofits go through the process of negotiating an indirect cost rate and end up denied anything better than the unnegotiated de minimis rate? (laughs) I feel like we may need a dictionary. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, can we whip out the dictionary? Yeah, these are some very... I've ever seen a question with un... Right? (laughs) Yeah. God, unnegotiated de minimis rate? That makes my head hurt. Okay. (laughs) So what I think what I'm going to do for, first of all. Smart as you. It's a really good question. It is an excellent question that, that, that probably several people have had. And there's very, there's almost no way to answer it yourself um, without assistance. So thank you for the question. I'm going to try to rephrase it so that people that don't have any idea what we're talking about will know what this thing is. So when you are awarded a federal grant, and that can be a any grant that starts at the federal government and gets passed through any entity, either from another federal department like HUD or the USDA or something like that, or gets passed through from one of those departments to the state, city, county, any municipality that would then be re-granting that money to you. In many cases you are allowed to claim some money back that would normally not be part of the grant. So let's put an example out there. Let's say you have a grant that's going to pay for sheltering homeless people. The grant is probably written in such a way that what they're going to pay for is the direct expenses of sheltering homeless people, which is going to include things like the building that they're in or the rent for the building that they're in and managing the application process and making sure the places get cleaned when they get transferred in and out and all the other stuff that goes along with that particular activity. What it doesn't pay for, the grant specifically won't be able to pay for, is things like the receptionist that answers the phone at the head office that you're managing it or the bookkeeper that needs to keep track of all of these little tiny expenses and make sure that they go into the spreadsheet the right way. So you've got all of these extra costs that go along with running a business that aren't directly related to the service of that particular program and usually aren't part of the budget that you get back from the entity, whatever you're getting the money from, right? So the federal government realizes this, and and actually we negotiated super hard for this in the 90s, so you're welcome. Um, And that's that you can 
get what's called an indirect cost rate or indirect cost that's just a percentage of the total grant that you're given that you're given with sort of no strings attached other than it can't be used for things that you're not allowed to buy. So an example is you can't buy a building. You can't buy capital improvements, things like that. You can't, you're having a party, even if the party was part of the grant, you can't buy alcohol for the party because that's the kind of thing that's like specifically not allowed. So as long as it's not officially disallowed, you get a portion of that grant paid as what's called an indirect cost. So say somebody gives you a million dollars, you get a grant from a million dollars for doing this thing. You have access to $100,000, which is that 10% that was in the question, um, just just without doing anything else. It's called the de minimis rate, which means that that's the minimum that they'll pay you for indirect costs is 10% of the total value of the grant. So that's what that is. The You also have the opportunity, and this is what the finally what the question is asking. You have the opportunity of going back to the agency that's providing the grant and saying, look, 10% is not enough. Like the way our organization structured, like we really spend more than 10% on indirect costs to run our operation. It's more like 20%. And the state allows you the sort of the department, I'm sorry, the department allows you to go through the process of negotiating an indirect cost rate that's different from that 10%. So that's what the question's asking about is like, when is this worth it? How do you know? <laughs> like, what's the process like? Is it possible to get um, screwed in the process and end up with a lower rate, right? So I'll answer that one first. Like the de minimis rate is truly the de minimis rate. So if you go through the process and they come back and they're like, that's actually eight, like you can still claim 10. You don't have to like take the eight. That's not required. Um, the other thing is like, when do you si- decide it's important? Um, it's the first thing that I would look at, like the first clue, especially if you're getting a federal grant, there's, you're very likely to get audited financials and you're certainly required to fill out the full form 990. So if you're still doing the 990N, you don't have this information available. But if you're doing the regular 990, you absolutely have it. And if you're getting an audited financial statement, you definitely have it. And that's the statement of functional expenses. So what the statement of functional expenses is, is it's a financial statement that you're required to produce that divides your expenses into three big buckets, program, fundraising, and administrative. So fundraising and administrative for for argument's sake are the things that you would look at at what percentage that is compared to your program. So if it's significantly higher than 10% and most of that lives on the administrative side, not the fundraising side, you might want to consider asking what the process is going to be like to get a negotiated rate. Um, If it's around 10% or less than 10%, don't even bother because you're not going to get a higher rate. But that functional statement of functional expenses is going to give you a sense of like how how much you're leaving on the table when you're getting a federal grant that is is not going to be paid for if you're just going to use the 10%. So there's some catches to this. Like the one big catch is we now we're super spoiled because we do the single audit, right? So if you get seven, spend $750,000 a year or more in combined federal grants, you have to do this big thing called the single audit. The reason it's single is because back in the bad old 80s, We had to do one for every single federal agency. So if you got money from HUD, you did an audit for HUD. If you got money from USDA, 
you got you had to do one for the USDA. If you got money for, you know, just list the whole alphabet of federal agencies, you were doing audits for all of them. What the single audit does is say, look, if you're getting all this money, just do one. You don't have to do millions. You just have to do one. Unfortunately, the indirect cost rate process is per agency. So if you're getting money from USDA and you want to negotiate your 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 indirect cost rate to get a higher indirect cost rate, you have to do it with the USDA. If you're also getting money from HUD, you have to go through the exact same process and negotiate it with HUD, and they can come up with different answers based on how they read your documents. Um, the practical way of doing this, if this is something that you decide you want to do, is usually, unless you're a really big organization and you have a lot of accounting staff already, you usually contract with an accounting firm and say, we want to negotiate an indirect cost rate with this agency. Can you help us? And they'll help you go through the process of generating all the documents you need to generate in order to, to get a negotiated indirect cost rate. Um, so I'd say the first bar is look at your statement of functional expenses. If that number is really high, if your administrative is more than 10, um, and you recognize that you're going to spend money with an accountant to get this figured out, like, yeah, maybe you should go for it. Um, if you're close to 10, I mean, I was always like under 10 or just too lazy, honestly, like it's just a lot of work to get another 3%, which is going to translate into $14,000 or something like that. That's not worth, that's not worth the squeeze for me. Um, but you have to, you have to figure that out yourself. I'm sure. Thank you for answering that very complicated question. And I guess I'm curious to know if you have heard organizations or been a part of that negotiation process of negotiating that indirect cost rate, and I know it's dependent on the agency and their own process, have you seen that to be a pretty complicated in general? Is that is that a pretty complicated process for the most part? Can you expect if you're going to go negotiate that, that you're looking at X number of hours to do that? Yeah, it's not impossible. And we'll put a link in the show notes to, once again, <laughs> um, the the Code of Federal Regulations, the section of the CFRs that talk about how, because it's a federal policy, right? It'll talk about if you want to negotiate an indirect cost rate, you have to do this. There's like an entire appendix dedicated to it. And then each individual department will probably have different rules about how you submit it, what the format's supposed to look like. So I think depending on how complicated you are as an organization and the federal department that you're working with, I think it could be wildly different. I think some of them are probably easier than others. Um, I don't, I haven't done it enough times to really be able to say six hours, 20 hours, anything like that, to be honest. Hey, everybody. Do you hear that round of applause in the background? Am I a total cheese ball? Yes, I am. That was my round of applause for you for getting through another episode. Hopefully it wasn't painful. Hopefully you don't need a round of applause, but still, thank you for sticking it out, sticking through till the end with us. So appreciate it. So sometimes we like to pop in random questions here of each other at the end. And I do have to ask Andy a question. He's asked me before, you know, what, what book am I reading? So I'm curious to know what 
podcast other than ours, of course, that you are listening to and not having to edit and do all the stuff you do for ours, but like some that like something you're really enjoying listening to. So our friend Clay Buck just dropped a brand new podcast called Fundraising is Funny. And I listened to the first episode yesterday, last night, and I found it hilarious and compelling, just like Clay is in real life. So if you haven't heard theirs, um, please go jump over and um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, so you can you can hear more um, nonprofit specific activity and one with maybe a little less didactic flavor, a little more a little more fun and a little less um, firehose download of information <laughs> like ours is. <laughs> I I love it. I can't wait. I saw that promoted and I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but I'm going to. And yeah, Clay always delivers um, great and his personality makes it fun. So do you think now that he's got his own podcast, he's still going to jump in and be a guest expert for us every once in a while? Or is he too cool? I was going to say, is he too cool for he us anymore? Cool Has he gotten gotten too big? So anyway, <laughs> Let's let's hope not. If not, I'll have to go hunt him down and give him a swift kick in the butt. But uh, I say that with all love if he's listening. Okay, so yeah, and I, you know, just to return that question, I am listening to a bit of optimism by Simon Sinek. I like what I like are the guests he brings on and talks about different things, and it's not all like cheesy toxic positivity stuff. Like he had someone on the other day who talked about how, you know, it's some, you know, it's actually they're not a very optimistic person and how they've kind of worked through and, you know, gotten through life not being very optimistic and and what tools they use to try to not be totally a, a Debbie Downer. Sorry if your name is Debbie, but you know whatever. So anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so there is there is mine that I've recently gotten into, but I love dabbling with podcasts. And we appreciate if you're a dabbler and just dabbling in ours, great. If you are a longtime loyal listener, great. But thank you for listening to another episode. You know where to find us. You can hunt us down on social media. You can find us at nonprofiteverything.com. It is your questions that make the magic happen. So we couldn't do this without you. And uh, always appreciate growing our listenership. So share it, you know, sh you know, give us those rave reviews, do all the stuff to help us get out there in the world. And, uh, that's our ask of you today. Borrow your friend's phone and stealth add us to their podcasting app. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> hmm. I kind of like that idea. They'll be like, what? What was I smoking that I didn't see this <laughs> Why is this crap here? <laughs>